Welcome to the Post-Brexit Europe podcast, which is a product of the Bridge Network, recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. On this episode, we have a high-level policy dialogue between two scholar politicians. First, Ernst Hirsch-Ballen, who is both a distinguished legal scholar and former Minister of Justice from the Netherlands. And second, Julie Smith, a political scientist from Cambridge University, who is also known as Baroness Smith of Newnham, member of the House of Lords. The two of them will be talking about bridging research and policy on the future of Europe. Now, this dialogue was recorded at the kickoff conference of the Bridge Network last October. We apologize for the sound quality, which is at times a bit distorted. The first voice that you will hear is Professor Federico Fabrini, who is director of the DCU Brexit Institute and principal investigator of the Bridge Network. He will introduce Ernst Hirschballen and Julie Smith. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the uh, final session of today's uh, conference. I'm really delighted to be able to chair this uh, high-level policy dialogue that concludes our uh, kickoff event uh, of the Jean Monnet Project Bridge, which, as you already know very well, is sponsored by the European Union Erasmus Plus program and involves the Brexit Institute of DCU, the University of Copenhagen, Central European University, uh, and the University of Bolzano Bozen. And it is uh, a great pleasure for me uh, to introduce two distinguished speakers, uh, Julie Smith and Ernst Hirsch Ballin, uh, who I want to thank very much for accepting uh, to come and speak here in Dublin uh, today. Uh, Julie and Ernst represent, I think, the ideal speakers to conclude an event of this type because on the one hand they are leading academics with expertise in the field of European and comparative law and politics, but on the other hand they are also, uh, um, they've been, they have been and still are very much involved in, in policy making as such they perfectly bridge uh, research and policy which I think is also the title of this final sec session, Bridging Research and Policy on the Future of uh, Europe. So Julie Smith, or uh, she was correcting on my paper, but I was about to say the correct title for Julie is the Right Honorable Baroness Smith of Newham. Newham? Newham. Yes. Is that a city in England? It's a. It's part of Cambridge. It's part it of Cambridge. It was a hamlet, and the ribbon development means it's now part of the city of Cambridge. But if you look at the iconic backs in Cambridge, the pretty bit, that's part of Newham. Well, thanks for the explanation and of course congratulations for uh, this role. I think Julie really needs very little introduction because she's well known to all of you, but uh, just briefly she studied PPE, uh, Politics, Philosophy and Economics at Oxford. She then went on to get an MPhil and a DPhil at St. Anthony, writing a thesis on the European Parliament election and the role of the European Parliament mm -hmm. that was later uh, published. And she indeed had a, a long and distinguished academic career starting <coughs> at CEU. I'm very keen to stress it uh, here today since they are one of our partners. Uh, and then she moved to uh, Cambridge, so across the Ale uh, on the other side, uh, where she first was a lecturer, then senior lecturer, and I and understand from last year, reader 
in uh, in politics. She also directed Chatham House in London, uh, but she has also been very active in uh, policy making and politics more generally uh, as a local councillor for the Lib Dems. And since 2014, she has been a member of the House of Lords, where she still sits. Uh, uh, and it has been a very intensive weeks for uh, for her. Mm -hmm. So thanks for taking the time to uh, join us. Uh, Ernst Irschbalin uh, is instead also a very distinguished academic and former Minister of Justice uh, of the Netherlands. He studied law at the University of Amsterdam, where he did his undergraduate master and PhD. Uh, he worked as an official in the Ministry of Justice, but uh, undertook an academic career, becoming professor at uh, Tilburg Law School. In 1989, he was uh, appointed Minister of Justice of the Netherlands, and that took him to a stellar academic uh, career in public office, uh, where he served uh, both uh, as a, a member of the Zweite Kammer, the House of Representatives, and the Erste Kammer, the, the Senate, the Upper House, as Minister of the Interior, a member of the Council of State, again, a Minister of Justice. In fact, I think you have been the longest serving Minister of Justice yes, in the Netherlands. Uh, <laughs> a, a very uh, important um, uh, badge of honor in your career, I would say. But in recent times, Ernst has left politics and returned back to academia at Tilburg Law School, where we actually had the opportunity to meet and collaborate uh, on a number of projects. And he has been and still is uh, very much involved uh, with leading think tanks and research institutions, the uh, um, Hague Institute for Global Justice, TMC Yasser Institute, uh, but perhaps more importantly for purposes today, he has been the director of the uh, project of the, uh, the Netherlands Scientific Council for Government Policy uh, on Variation. And I will say this, something more about this in a second. For those of you who don't know the Scientific Council for Government Policy, I think this is a very uh, original and interesting institutions that the Dutch have. It's it's basically a think tank within government mm -hmm. designed to advise policymaker uh, on their policy priority based on the research and expertise of uh, academics uh, and scholars. So a very good combination uh, of uh, sort of the uh, the research component and the and the practical policy uh, component. So as you can see from this very brief introduction, that definitely does not do justice to the richness of the two speakers. Uh, CV, uh, but I think Ernst and Julie are really uh, special guests for us because they are privileged observers of the dynamics at play in the European Union and the United Kingdom today. They're both academics, uh, they are both uh, involved in policy making, uh, they are uh, representing different political parties, I should also add, in the sense that. Julie is a member of the Lib Dem, whereas Ernst has spent his political career with the CDA, the Christian Democratic uh, Alliance. Uh, so I think we are also benefiting of a plurality of perspectives uh, on uh, the topics of our conversation. And this is exactly the types of high-level dialogues uh, that the Brexit Institute usually organizes. And I'm delighted that we can export the model uh, to the, uh, the bridge project. Let me just add two uh, very small things before giving mm -hmm. the floor uh, to Ernst. The first is that uh, Julie has been uh, really participating in the House of Lords discussions about Brexit over the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. In fact, we were uncertain till the last minute uh, whether we would be able to have you also uh, if, if something were to happen in the UK. 
obviously I mentioned it yesterday, we had decided to do this kickoff yeah. event on the 31st of October because it was a symbolic date, but once again, we missed it. Uh, we already had <laughs> tried it the 29th of March and it turned out it was not uh, the date to be, uh, but so we're really pleased to have you here. And uh, it's, it's also a great pleasure to welcome Ernst because I was mentioning it a second ago, the um, Dutch Scientific Council for Government Policy has produced uh, recently a report translated in English on uh, variation in the European Union, uh, which I know you will be presenting. And this is obviously very closely connected to, to the research stream of the bridge project on uh, differentiated governance. Uh, uh, as much as your work, of course, is connected uh, to the Brexit stream of our, uh, of our research. So once again, I would like to thank you for being here. Uh, and without further ado, I would like to give the floor to Ernst for his opening remarks. Uh, and then we will continue with Julie. Uh, and there will be then space for debate. Thanks again, and the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much for this introduction, uh, Federico, and I'm uh, really delighted that our former cooperation uh, could continue on the distance uh, in recent uh, years. Uh, Federico was also one of the specialists whom we consulted uh, with the uh, uh, Scientific Council for Government Policy when we are preparing this uh, report. And I must say that this conference is a really a delight for someone who had the feeling, together with the colleagues with whom I worked um, uh, on this report, that uh, the sentiments among the colleagues gathered here go so much in the direction of allowing for more differentiation or, um, uh, as we call it, variation in the European Union, in and between maybe the European Union and uh, um, uh, states that are not yet member states or former member states, or um, uh, will be, will, well, maybe we will develop something in between in the future. That was maybe one of the mistakes in the past, that we thought that uh, being a member state of the European Union should be a uniform concept. Um, I should add maybe why we got, uh, I've distributed this leaflet about the book publication of our report and we ch slightly changed the title of uh, the report when we prepared for the book publication. It's now called European Variation as a Key to Cooperation. Um, why did we change the title? Um, because we wanted to emphasize that it is not just a plaidoyer for doing away with European integration. It's a different approach to European cooperation. That is the essence of our report. We um, continued to use, uh, nevertheless, the expression variation. Why not differentiation? Although we were, of course, aware that in many places the word differentiation has been used in, uh, over, over many years. Well, for two year, uh, reasons. One is because we wanted to emphasize that the variations that we have in mind do not merely relate to the included or not included member states. And you find, if I would have brought slides with me, I would certainly have a slide with this picture. You will find it in the leaflet. It um, consists of several dimensions, policy content and decision-making next to membership questions. And as you know, there is um, as a well-educated audience, you know that there is a fourth dimension in reality that we can't see, and that is the dimension of time, the fourth dimension of variation. It can change over time in which way <coughs> um, uh, parts of 
uh, Europe are included or not yet included or different or in a, in, with variations included in the European cooperation. And another reason why we avoided the word differentiation when presenting this report to um, the um, to the, the government of the Netherlands, the Scientific Council for Government Policy is um, the only general advisory council for policy. Well, uh, um, uh, we have of course a council of state, but that has a different uh, task with respect to policies. It's the only council with a general task, as for the where, um, from the point of view of the organisation attached to the prime to the prime minister's uh, office, the, minist the Ministry of General Affairs, and we wanted to uh, avoid the impression among the readers, politicians, civil servants, uh, um, specialists in this field and the public in general, that it is merely a repetition of um, 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 proposals for differentiation as we have seen in the past, which were almost um, exclusively related to the extension, the territorial extension of the European Union. We wanted to, uh, to avoid this prejudice and we wanted also to anticipate the objection that we, um, that we expected when coming up with these proposals and that is the objection that um, my, my colleagues from the Netherlands, uh, like Bruno de Witte, uh, uh, remember that very well. <coughs> in the past, in the 80s and the 90s of the past century, <coughs> and even in the beginning of um, this uh, century, uh, the, the, the standardized objection to any proposals for allowing for differentiation was be careful. Um, be careful because of the risk of cherry picking or in a Dutch expression, you should not allow others to eat the, ch the cheese on your slice of bread. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that is, that is, that is uh, telling. This is uh, clearly no spiritual uh, expression of being concerned. Um, now, let me mention something of my own experience, because I've indeed being involved in um, uh, decision-making and uh, policy development in the European Union, not only in my academic work, but also in, in political practice, um, in, in various situations, um, uh, in, uh, uh, in the convention that drafted the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, but um, most frequent, in, as to the, f the frequency of what I've been doing bo in both periods in which I served as Minister of Justice of the Netherlands, we had the meetings of the Council of the European Union. And these Council meetings were quite different between 1989 uh, and 1994 compared to the situation in 2006, between 2006 and 2010. I think I attended the first and the last meeting both um, uh, of the Council in the composition under the third pillar. Um, and that was, an, uh, in hindsight, it was an intermediate phase in the development of European cooperation with respect to um, the justice and home affairs. And it remembers me, it remembered me when I was preparing for this conference, that the, that is, is for me the first time since 1990 to visit Ireland, to visit Dublin. I've never been back here since June 1990. And I remember that day that I was here very well. It was on Friday, the 15th 
of June 1990, early in the morning, the Ministers of Justice and Interior of the 12 member states at that time of the European communities were convened in Dublin Castle. And as the, in my capacity at that time, it was my task to sign the Dublin Convention, or not. Be, and I was not sure whether I was, would be among the colleagues signing the convention or not until about three minutes before the moment that I proceeded to the table where the signatures had to be placed because there was a lot of debate in the Netherlands about the desirability of the Dublin Convention. For what reason? Not, n not because people were concerned that it would be difficult for, um, for Greece or create uh, complications with a civil war in Syria or something like that. No, the reason that there were concerns about the Dublin Convention, uh, even in the Council of Ministers, the archives are now open, so I'm not uh, anymore obliged to, um, uh, to uh, be silent about the internal uh, debate. Um, some of my colleagues didn't like the idea of limiting our own responsibility of dealing with asylum requests. They thought that it is so important for the, for the Netherlands to deal even with repetitive asylum requests if they had been presented before in Germany or France or some other country, that we should not shy away from taking up upon our shoulders that, that task. So, well, that is a quite different climate with respect to migration at that time. And the other reason is even more telling about our subject, variation and differentiation in the European Union. Um, uh, some of my colleagues, um, especially those colleagues who also promoted the um, failed idea of uh, communitarization of justice and home affairs presented at the so-called Black Monday in 1991. Um, these colleagues, and they were uh, certainly did that with the best intentions, thought that we should not accept anything else than integration with the communitarian method and with communitarian institutions and not allow for something like the Dublin Convention that would go outside that. And I came across this same view, so we had some differences in view about it at that time, what is desirable and feasible and, 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 and not, and uh, I have always been pro-European, but I think that <coughs> we does not only apply to myself in the Ministry of Justice, we are more realistic maybe about the need to accept that justice and home affairs could not be de dealt with uh, with the same methods of integration as other affairs. I came across that situation again when I had, uh, and I remember that uh, very well when I saw observed Kenneth Clark. Um, uh, Kenneth Clark, who uh, was one of uh, the impressive speakers in the recent debates in, um, the, um, in uh, the lower house of British Parliament, um, he was my colleague between uh, April 1992 and um, slightly more than a year later, and we had some conversations about Schengen. And he was interested in Schengen, Kenneth Clark. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but he understood very well, and I think he was right to do so, that uh, abolishing uh, border, external border controls 
was not something with which he could come home in Britain. And then we discussed the possibility of having a different interpretation of the uh, basic ideas of the uh, Schengen uh, Convention that would focus on the land borders, which is obviously most important for people living in the border regions of Netherlands, France, uh, Belgium, uh, Germany, Italy, other countries. That was apparently a, a driving force. And on the other hand, there was a need we felt, and that was part of the Schengen approach, that we need to exchange better information concerning the people whom we might come across um, at external border controls. And with respect to an exchange of information with, be, uh, between justice and police services, the idea of Europol was born around the same time. And Kenneth Clark rightly noticed, and we had the same interest, that it would be important to include the United Kingdom in this form of cooperation. And it is still the case. It's one of the reasons why I, with the, the well, um, um, knowing what, what, what is going on more or less uh, in, the, in this field of cooperation, I'm very much concerned about the consequences of hard Brexit. It will be disastrous for um, the cooperation in the justice and police domains. And um, in this conversation, it was, uh, I've looked it up when it was exactly lastly on the 26th of October, 1992, we said to each other we should explore this idea of a different approach to borders. That's a kind of variation. But when I started speaking about this idea at home, I mean uh, uh, in, in, in the official sense of the word, my official home, the concerns came up. And some people said, um, including the same colleagues in the government at that time, well, this is uh, heretic. This means that you would not follow our interpretation of Article 8a at that time of the Single European Act. It's something of the past for most of the audiences, but <laughs> um, I, I noticed that Bruno still remembers what <laughs> Article 8a <laughs> said. Unfortunately. <laughs> 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 it, it, he, he viewed that as heretic compared to the notion that we should have uh, an acquis communautaire approach also to these domains of policy and not give in with British colleagues who thought that um, uh, there could be any variation with respect to the way in which we could implement the purposes re um, uh, of the, the, the Schengen uh, Convention. Now I move to the present. Um, this is only a sort of personal background, but also it were formative, formative experiences with respect to being pro-European and trying to understand also the differences in approach in other parts, in other uh, uh, countries uh, uh, belonging to the European uh, Union. Um, and that remembers me uh, of uh, another moment. Um, it was in Sevilla, why in Sevilla of all places, because there was a world exhibited, and it was there in an official capacity with uh, at a royal visit together with Prime Minister Ruth Lubbers at uh, that time. And then Ruth raised the question when we sat down in our hotel after visiting the world exhibit, and Ruth raised the question, should we have more political cooperation? 
Should we strive now primarily? It was long before the uh, the uh, uh, the extension. Um, it was when we anticipated the uh, the need to discuss the extension to the uh, Central and Eastern European candidate member states. Mm -hmm. The Copenhagen criteria were um, uh, were adopted the year thereafter, and to raise the question, Ritlevers, uh, whether we should focus primarily on deepening or widening, whether we should have political integration or just focus on the political priority of not um, uh, leaving aside these new um, uh, or reborn democracies in Central and Eastern Europe. Well, as you know, what we ended up in a situation in which we do, did both at the same time, more or less, and that was probably one of the is probably one of the explanations in hindsight that the tensions grow, have grown over the years within the European Union because of um, I, I'm I'm f stating it now in a bit simplified form compared to our report because of having a European Union of more than 25, almost 30 member states, <laughs> is not suitable for the uh, eternal prolongation of the idea of having a uniform acquis communautaire among all the member states. And of course we have a lot of differentiation as a matter of fact. We have included this, the same picture a map with all the flags that was presented earlier this morning in our report, and we have the we have the euro uh, the member states which don't have the euro. We have the non-member states where you can pay with the euro. We have Schengen outside, and on the other hand, not inside the European Union, and so on. But that was all uh, always at the end of the day, at the end of the night, al uh, almost of negotiations that. Um, with a um, uh, lot of sighs and irritations, the negotiators agreed to allow for an opt-in or an opt-out or for um, uh, a differentiation in time of being included in what remained to be the ultimate goal, and that is a key communautaire um, equally applicable in all member states to everyone. Well, that 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 um, orthodoxy of the acquis communautaire was what it, what we would wanted to help to come over in the Dutch government, in the Dutch among the Dutch civil servants, and also in Dutch society, because in politics, under the influence also of the populist critics of European integration, it appears like there are only two alternatives: being inside or being outside. Being inside and subjugated to the identical rules everywhere, although we know that the situation is in Romania is not the same as in, uh, in the Netherlands, are being outside and uh, which is indeed the, uh, we have also our next tiers in our country. They are a bit silent at present, but they are still there. Um, so that is the reason why we came up with a report in which we proposed to discuss variation in these three dimensions, not only of inclusion or not inclusion of member states or parts of member states, we have some dif dif differences within member states as well, think of the overseas 
uh, of the, um, the outermost regions, for instance, but with respect to the subject, the various uh, domains of, of policy of the European Union. Well, external relations are quite obvious. It has not yet been mentioned in, at this conference, but if we stick to the idea that unanimity among the member states will be required in external relations, um, um, we will continue to fail to be of any significance in uh, neighboring parts of the world like the Near East. It is important certainly with respect to migration, and I can, um, uh, um, can confirm from my view and experience that it would certainly be helpful um, after the successes, but also the shortcomings of the European asylum system, it did not include substantive rules concerning treatment and the procedures for, um, uh, for admitting um, asylum seekers or, or not. Um, we could adopt a different method, and we outlined that in our report, um, uh, where some member states would adopt a common structure for dealing with incoming asylum requests. That will, will be part from what we have now in the Dublin regulation and, uh, uh, and other arrangements in the European asylum system. <coughs> but that would be helpful, and then we should not bother, bother too much about those member states who will not be interested at all in any circumstances in contributing to that. Maybe you should pay in some some sense for that, um, be willing to accept some other things that are important for us, like not wavering on the principles of democracy and rule of law. But these are just um, two examples. I can add something about um, uh, um, uh, admission, future relation with non-member states, where variation might be helpful. And I think it would be certainly helpful to allow for variation with respect to the goals of climate policy, where in some parts of the European Union, the best approach, not with respect to the goals, the goals should be shared and common, but in some member states, a rule-based approach <coughs> is helpful. In other member states, it will be much more productive to, um, to invest in profound structures in the energy um, infrastructure um, are in developing new methods of uh, transport. And so a mix of policy could also, also be part of European variations along the three dimensions that we've distinguished. A very insightful presentation that combines personal memories uh, with a summary also of the main content of this uh, very interesting report of the uh, Council for Government Policy. We'll move straight to Julie Smith. Once again, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I think Bruno provided the perfect bridge from the, from the academics moving through to practitioners, because you'd have noticed that neither Ernst nor I are using PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> even when I'm doing my academic job, I find PowerPoint a bit of a problem, because if I watch people giving PowerPoint presentations, I quite often fall asleep. And if I try and do a PowerPoint presentation myself, I tend to get confused and talk ahead of myself, forget what slide I'm meant to be at next, and generally it gets a little bit confused. So I take myself predominantly as being an old-fashioned academic who works on the history and politics of the European Union. But I have been involved in politics since I was 12. 
I first got involved in a by-election in the United Kingdom in November 1981. That means that unlike some of my colleagues who've been pushing to have a general election in December, I have thought that this might not be a very good idea because I remember what it's like fighting elections in the middle of winter when it's cold and dark and wet because the weather in the UK is very similar to being here in Ireland and I don't recommend it. But nevertheless, that's where we are. The UK is about to have a general election. I'm delighted that the Brexit Institute keeps holding events on the date that is supposed to be Brexit Day. <laughs> if you could please arrange one for the 31st of January 2020. We have one on that date. Perfect, thank right. you very much. <laughs> you know, this is obviously assisting the UK kicking the can down the road, being ever more differentiated. But we're in a very odd position where Dublin has a Brexit Institute. Brexit has become the new Game of Thrones. And when I talk to colleagues from Germany, I'm told, well, we keep watching the British Parliament. We mostly watch the House of Commons, but we also watch the House of Lords. And in particular, today might not be the day the UK leaves the European Union, but it is the day that John Burko is stepping down as Speaker of the House of Commons. Now, the idea that anybody would know who the Speaker of the House of Commons was before we had the referendum, before we've ended up with three and a half years of utter confusion in the UK, is extraordinary. Because you know, the mention of Nancy Pelosi earlier, Nancy Pelosi is you know, speaker, speaker of the American Parliament uh, Congress, completely <coughs> different. The role of the US Speaker is one that does have constitutional significance. In the UK, the Speaker of the House of Commons officially has a role, but in practice, they've always been intended to be a neutral person. You wouldn't expect them to be the centre of attention. But that's where we've ended up, because British politics since the referendum has been so confused and so confusing. But this debate, which isn't quite a debate, it's two of us speaking and then possibly having dialogue afterwards, was one where we were told that it's a debate but not quite, um, not quite a debate. And I wasn't given the sort of normal steer of, please talk about a certain issue. So I'm assuming that I'm meant to talk a little bit about Brexit and a little bit about differentiated integration, but bridging that gap between research and policymaking. So my notes were initially about that, the divide between policymaking and research. But as I was listening to Ernst, I put down a few dates because given my academic discipline is the history and politics of the EU, that also causes me to go back to 1969 and the Hague summit. I wasn't there, I don't remember it, but one of the key things about the Hague summit was that whole idea of the acquis communautaire comes in advance of the very first EU enlargement or community enlargement. Completing, widening, deepening, but the fact that any new member state is supposed to sign up to everything that the existing member states have signed up to. So going back before the first enlargement to a concept that was every member state has to sign up to the same things. And if you turn up to the party late, you have to agree to what the existing member states want to do. That's what the UK signed up to do. We joined in 1973 
after the Hague summit, we knew what the rules were. We knew we were supposed to sign up to the same things. And yet, when I was first teaching, one of the questions people used to ask if you were looking at enlargement policy which was, which was the mistaken enlargement? Was Greek enlargement a mistake? Was that something that fundamentally damaged the integration process? Or was it, in fact, the United Kingdom joining in 1973 that really created tensions? Because the UK came in and immediately said, well, we don't like this agricultural policy. We don't like the fisheries policy. We don't like the budget. We got our own way over the budget. But we were supposed to be signed up to Economic and Monetary Union. That was on the agenda already at the Hague summit. But by the time the UK joins, we say, well, we're not quite sure about the euro. By contrast, Ireland came in as the, the star pupil, came in at the same time as the UK, and did want to sign up to the euro and to other policies. That it stayed out of Schengen isn't so much about Irish domestic policy, it's about having that land border with the UK. So the UK comes in and starts saying no. And then we get to the Maastricht Treaty. Eventually comes in in 1993. But why are there so many opt-outs? Why have we ended up with what you might call differentiated integration? It's because eventually the member states realized, at the time we're still 12 member states, that unless there was an opt-out facility, the United Kingdom and Denmark, the other one of the three countries that joined in 1973, was going to block further integration, particularly in the Eurozone. So here is where political pragmatism meets European law, that eventually there was an understanding among the member states that if they really wanted progress to create the, Euro the European Union and the ha have the Maastricht Treaty, some form of opt-out was necessary. So we enshrined the very idea of variable geometry or differentiated integration all the way back in the early 1990s. The problem is that once you've created a precedent, it becomes natural for the United Kingdom in particular to keep saying, we want more and more opt-outs. But what we did, I think, unintentionally, was create a precedent for the countries that joined in 2004 to have ever more opt-outs. Or, if not opt-outs, at least to think that the rules don't necessarily have to apply to them. And we don't, at the moment, have any derogations on democracy and the rule of law. They are fundamental beliefs of the European Union. But what we've seen in some of those areas that people were talking about in the first two panels today, but I possibly want to talk particularly about the RESPOND panel, or the RESPOND project, which is not one of these differentiated integration uh, projects or networks officially, but actually fits very well. Because if you look at the decisions the EU has made about refugee resettlement, which are the countries that haven't agreed? Many of the Visegrad countries, Central and East European countries, they were outvoted and they now don't implement. So what we've got are formal rules that are being ignored by certain member states. So we might have legal, apparent legal certainty, but we don't actually have member states abiding by what they've signed up to do. So I think we're seeing increasing differentiation 
And it's not all the fault of the United Kingdom. We might have set a bad example. But you might say the 27 could be liberated in the near future. You might find that the EU 27, which have been so effective and being coherent since the UK voted to leave the EU, could find themselves more coherent when we leave. <coughs> but then again, maybe not. Because there is a danger that once the UK leaves, and for the sake of argument for the moment, wearing my academic hat, I'm going to say we are going to leave. So I just take it for the moment that we, the UK will leave. If so, Poland and the Czech Republic and Hungary aren't necessarily going to have countries masking their views as being the avant-garde in terms of blocking changes on refugee policy. Other countries, particularly Sweden, aren't going to have a country that says, well, we're going to ensure that the Eurozone isn't the single currency. So once the UK leaves, countries that do have divergent views are either going to be forced to cohere or they need to step up to the plate and say, you know what, we really don't believe in some of these things. And so I think what is really interesting for the three differentiated integration projects is very much that if Brexit happens, there is a bit of a new tableau for the 27 really to begin to think how far they want to work as one and how far they do indeed have different trajectories of their own within the European Union. But how does any of that sort of general academic discussion fit with a policy agenda? Because we clearly have a question of does any practitioner ever listen to policymakers? <laughs> Now, do we have any economists in the room? No, okay, good. Because if we had two economists in the room, then we'd have three policy proposals. Yeah. And one of the things we know about certain experts is they're going to have different views. But historically, when I was a child, when that first British referendum on staying in the common market was held, British voters trusted politicians and they trusted experts. There was a sense of deference. By 2016, we knew they had stopped trusting politicians. What we didn't know was that they would be encouraged also to stop listening to experts. Michael Gove, currently responsible for planning No Deal Brexit, announced during the referendum that he thought that people had had enough of experts, really. So, as an academic, and a Liberal Democrat Remainer, then perhaps I should simply have packed my bags and gone away to retirement somewhere. But I didn't, because I still believe in Remain, and I still think there's a value to experts and expertise. But the interesting thing, and here I think there is a real sense that experts can have a role, is the ESRC, our Economic and Social Research Council, set up a network in the UK ahead of the referendum called a UK in a changing Europe, uh, UK in a changing Europe, led by Anand Menon, a professor at King's College London. That is now revered in, among the political class, Remainers, Leavers, left, right, Labour, Conservative, as an independent think tank. Academics who are part of UK in a changing Europe are lauded all over the place, they are plastered all over the media, and they are effective in getting their views across. But what they're not allowed to do 
is come in with a normative stance. So if you claim to be speaking for a UK and a changing Europe, you can't also say, and it's a bloody stupid thing to campaign to leave the European Union. So that was one thing that was very clear. You've got to be objective in what you're saying and you shouldn't have too much of a normative stance. But it does suggest that researchers can be listened to, but it's not because of those peer-reviewed journal articles. It's not books published by university presses. And so there is a disconnect between academe and policymakers very often. Policymakers, by and large, are not going to be reading the publications that get you the stellar points for promotion <laughs> or in your research excellence frameworks, whatever sort of research frameworks are required in your countries. So there's a need to be slightly different in the sort of policies that you might put forward and how you sell your research, repackage it in a way that is short and dirty. Because your average politician, particularly if you want to brief Boris Johnson, he might read a page if you're lucky. So you can have all the research you like, publish it in an erudite journal, but do the one-page summary that might get read. And my final point on that is I thought the answer, Susan's answer on the role of anthropologists earlier was really useful because if you want to get to an elected politician give them that human story tell them about how it might affect one of their constituents because that's what turns politicians on and it's what works in elections if you're briefing officials you can give them the serious scholarly research if you're briefing politicians give them the personal and so I think there is a way to bridge research and policy making, but it does actually require a little bit of lateral thinking and creativity. And I love in your summary that little box that looks as, as if it's been coloured in by a small child, because I think if we can have a little bit of therapy from Brexit, it probably is adult colouring in. And whether that's a picture of an EU flag, the UK flag, or Boris Johnson memes, I leave that up to you. Thank you very much, Julie, for this presentation, which was analytically sharp, but also uh, politically inspiring and inspired. Um, I, I, should I interpret your reference to the campaigning under the rain as the fact that you're worried about the 12th of December? Uh, maybe we can come back. Not necessarily politically, but I think in terms of if you want your campaigners to go out and knock on doors. So in the UK, Presumably, like, well, our politics is still local. It's not quite as local as Irish politics, but we go and knock on doors. The, the most important thing is knocking on doors and speaking to voters. And in December, people are going to be out at their Christmas parties, they're going to be out shopping, and it's dark. So if you knock on somebody's door at 6 o'clock in June in the sunlight, they'll open the door. In December, they're going to say, what on earth do you want? Why is some random stranger knocking on my door? So I think the campaign is going to be quite difficult in that sense. On the other hand, people might be so keen to stop Brexit or to get Brexit done that they will turn out to vote. So I'm not too worried about the turnout. The Post-Brexit Europe podcast is a product of the Bridge Network which is a Jean Monnet network funded by the European Union's Erasmus Plus program. It is recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute with Catherine Martin as the producer. My name is Ian Cooper. Thank you for listening.